Well, on the 11th of March, just a few weeks ago, Zachary Rolf, Constable Zachary Rolf, was given a unanimous, not guilty verdict for the murder of Kumanjai Walker in Yuendamu, Northern Territory, November 2019. Some believe that justice was done. Others did not. Perhaps you have strong opinions about this case. I'm not suggesting either way. But I bring it up to get you to think about something from our passage this morning. You see, last week in chapter 4, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar humbled by the King of Heaven, the Most High God. And in this morning's chapter, we see another story about a king with lots of parallels to chapter 5, but with a completely different outcome. Yet in both chapters, the Lord of all the earth judged rightly. Do you believe that the Lord of heaven always judges rightly? That he is sovereign over all peoples? And do you trust that he always judges rightly? And what are the implications of that for us? Well, let's think about that question as we work our way through this chapter with your Bibles open and notepads ready. I have two points for you this morning which map onto the two main sections of our passage. Firstly, the Lord judges the proud. And secondly, the Lord humbles the proud. So let's begin at point number one. Firstly, the Lord judges the proud. So here we are. Last week, we finished chapter 4, which was also the final chapter on King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. That's the last that we hear of him. And after a slow build-up through the first four chapters of Daniel, uh, with God trying to get his attention through multiple miracles and uh, occasions where he speaks to him, Nebuchadnezzar is finally, as we saw last week, finally humbled and he finally lifts his eyes to the God of heaven. In what seemed like the most impossible turn of events, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled before God. And so much so that he proclaimed how great this God was to all the peoples, nations and languages of the earth. Chapter 4 finishes with his words. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, such an event would would hardly go unnoticed, even years after his death. Such a dramatic turnaround. My own grandfather was the first in his family to convert to Christianity from Catholicism. And that's a story for another time. But it's one that I remember. Uh, You you know, that wasn't a king converting. That was just my grandfather. And yet I, I know that that's the case. Even if I did forget which grandfather it was and had to clarify with my parents. And that brings us to chapter 5. Daniel, at the beginning of this chapter, takes us forward several decades without telling us to the time of King Belshazzar. 
Uh, now, technically, Belshazzar wasn't actually the king at this time. Uh, his father, Nabonidus, who was the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar, was the one who was actually the king. When Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC, there was a power struggle for the throne between his sons for a few years, and the one sitting on it actually changed a few times. In the end, though, Nabonidus won, and he began his reign from 556 BC until the very night of these events here in Daniel chapter 5. So why does Daniel call Belshazzar the king here? Well, Nabonidus was often away for long periods of time, And as a result, his son would be his vice regent. Basically, he would be uh, the guy in charge while daddy was gone. He was the 2IC, but then he became effectively the acting manager or the acting boss, acting king. This is one of the reasons why Belshazzar offers the position of third in the kingdom in verses 7 and 16 and 29 in our chapter. Uh, That was the highest that he could offer to Daniel or to whoever could interpret the vision because he himself was only second in charge. And to give you an idea of the circumstances surrounding Daniel 5, uh, the Persians had already taken a couple of key cities in the Babylonian kingdom and they were on the march towards the capital. So it's, it's a little bit baffling. That Belshazzar would throw this this big drunken party knowing that his city could be invaded by the Persians at any moment. We don't know exactly why he did this, but from the hints indicated in the text, uh, it could very well be that uh, he had already seen the writing on the wall, even before the writing was on the wall. And so he was thinking to himself, you know, well, let's eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's possible as well that he was take, uh, that you know, given that his name actually means uh, Bel, or one of the Babylonian gods, Bel protect the king. Uh, he was he was possibly trying to boost the morale of his subjects, thinking to himself, "Don't worry, guys, we're going to be fine. Let me all get you in together, and let me remind you of how great uh, our god Bel is, and how he has defeated previous nations before." We don't know exactly what his motives were, but this is what he has done. But if, if that was, that last bit, what he was trying to do, well, how would he do that? Let's read from chapter 1. Sorry, from verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of God and of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Now, this was a big party, at least a thousand, likely more. And as the king starts to feel the effects of the wine, he he thinks to himself, let me show everyone here how great our gods are. I mean, we defeated those Israelites all those years ago. We still have their gods things in our temple. Let's bring them out. You might remember how we saw this happen at the beginning of the book in chapter one and how it symbolized the greater power of the God who was victorious. 
the defeated God's temple vessels being carried off to the winning God's temple, they were basically like victory trophies. And so Belshazzar in his drunken state, he he wheels these out for his guests to drink from. And you can see how the author underscores the point of how this is an act of great offence to God in the way that he describes it there in verse 3. These vessels have been taken from the temple, the very house of God in Jerusalem. In basically uh, any type of competition, uh, whether it's chess or boxing or chess boxing, there are usually acts of disrespect that you can find in those, right? Perhaps it's, it's opening with a, a really bad move, a really amateur move, or perhaps fighting with one hand behind your back. You know, that, th- those are signs of disrespect to show that, you know, you think your opponent is, is not even worth, you know, a proper contest. You find that in, in all competitions. And it doesn't matter what the act itself is. It's the intent behind it that communicates the message that you are trying to get across. And Belshazzar doing exactly this was communicating that. He lifted himself up above the king of heaven. Notice how the author also emphasizes that it's the king, his lords, his wives, and his concubines. For a couple of reasons, uh, including the fact that we have examples of it in other literature, this very well could mean that there was more going on at this party than just drinking. It's, it's that kind of party. Whatever the case, uh, it is a celebration in defiance of Israel's God. And then they take it an extra step by rubbing it in God's face. They praise their dead gods. Of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is a direct violation of the second commandment that God gave to the Israelites. And it is a statement that the God of the Hebrews, he is powerless in comparison to our gods. Last week, we had the calm before the storm as Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed his ease and his prosperity in his palace. This week, we have the disrespect before the destruction. God's pronouncement of judgment on Belshazzar and his kingdom comes immediately as it did in last week's chapter in verse 33. Friends, it's good to remember that if God gave us what we deserve, we would receive his judgment immediately. The only reason that you haven't is because of his great mercy and compassion and patience. And he delays that so that you might humble yourself before him. Daniel gives us a description of the hand and its writing on the wall opposite the lampstand. These details are probably given to show us that the king wasn't hallucinating and that this was some kind of figment of his imagination in his drunkenness but that this is what actually happened. And you've got to love the irony here. Here are the Babylonians praising their gods uh, that are made of dead materials on earth that do not live, that do not breathe. And now here is God sending him a very clear message 
through a living hand. What a contrast between dead gods and the living, the one true living God. The Bible doesn't tell us whether it's God's hand or whether it's God's hand or whether it's an angel's hand, but, but that doesn't really matter. The point is that it is from God. And Daniel will make that even clearer later on. I think for most of us, even if we weren't drunk, the sight of a disembodied hand just suddenly writing on the wall, uh, that would freak us out, right? And Daniel makes it unmistakably clear what the author's response is here in the text. He is scared. It uses multiple uh, descriptions. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. And there is a very interesting play on words here with uh, his limbs gave way. In the original Aramaic, the words are actually literally his, his knots were loosened or, or his hip knots were loosened. But I'll get back to that later. It's quite clear that the king, he is, he's shocked, he's afraid. And so he calls all of the enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers to explain it to him. In the same way that, of course, his grandfather once did. Well, actually, twice did. And also in the same way that his grandfather did, he offers a great reward for anyone who can explain it. I have to uh, fix that. I'll I'll point it out to you so you can follow on in your Bibles. In verse 8. Oh, sorry, in verse 7. But of course, as we've come to expect now in the book of Daniel, none of the other wise men... They are able to interpret what Daniel has to, uh, what God has said in the message. There's a little bit of speculation as to why this is. Let me give you. Let me just pause because I know that <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit hard to concentrate. Maybe the Lord is telling us something. <laughs> Hopefully that's not the writing on the screen. Let me, let me go back. Verse, uh, from verse 8. Uh, of course, we've, as we've come to expect, the interpreters, the, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the enchanters, they are unable to actually tell the king what the message is. Now, there is, there is a little bit of speculation as to why they can't do this, right? Because as we'll see later on, the words, they are actually pretty much just standard Aramaic words, but they may have just been difficult to read. But the point is that they, they couldn't read it, let alone interpret it. And so Belshazzar, he panics even more when he realizes that this uh, incredible supernatural event, which, which definitely would have made it onto Ripley's Believe It or Not, has just occurred and he has, he's got currently no way of being able to understand it. Now, if you just take a breath here in the narrative, you can feel the tension of this moment. 
We've heard what has happened. Belshazzar has come and done this. God immediately does this act. And now here is the king with no answer. If this was a TV show, this is where an ad break would come in. And it's a good place to pause also for us and to think. How do you respond to the writing on the wall? The living God has sent you his living word in his son and in his scripture, telling you that judgment is coming. Will you humble yourself before him? Belshazzar is in a desperate state and he needs a solution. Enter the queen mother. Now, the translation says the queen, because that is literally what is written. But you may have a note in your Bible which suggests that queen mother is another possibility. And that's actually the more likely possibility, because the term uh, could be used this way. And we've already seen that Belshazzar's wives are actually already present with him in the party. And not to mention that her knowledge of what has gone on before in the kingdom many years ago. And so here, the Queen Mother boldly and respectfully enters the king's court, addressing him with uh, the the greeting of, O King, live forever, which we've seen before in chapter 2. A term of respect for him and tries to reassure Belshazzar. Did you notice uh, her description of Daniel that she goes on to say? It sounds a lot like what we've heard before on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. She perhaps may have even heard this from Nebuchadnezzar himself describing Daniel to her. Here she also uses another term which has some flexibility of usage in both Aramaic and Hebrew. Father did not always refer to a biological father. Once again, you might have a note in your Bibles that says predecessor. And there are lots of examples of this throughout the Old Testament, like in Jeremiah 11.4. And so when the Queen Mother describes Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father, she's using the term with the same range of meaning that the language normally does. But you'll notice that she emphasizes the fact that he's Belshazzar's predecessor and that he was the king. She wants to make sure that he remembers this point, that he knows that he is part of this royal lineage And the Queen Mother also describes Daniel in the same way that he's been described throughout the entire book. And in particular, she says that he has the ability to solve problems. And the reason I highlight this is because in Aramaic, that is literally to untie knots. As you might remember from before, the king's hip knots were loosened in his fear. Probably actually indicating that he soiled himself in his drunken panic after seeing the handwriting on the wall. And so there's this ironic wordplay in the Bible showing once again how the kings of the earth, in all of their pride, in all of their arrogance, can actually be reduced to being the butt of a joke. The king of heaven still reigns. Do you see how much calling back to the reign of Nebuchadnezzar is going on in this chapter? So much is mentioned. Obviously, Daniel later on, he then goes on to describe the the whole history. All of this is intentional. 
Chapters 4 and 5, they mirror each other a great deal and in some ways are showing how the King of Heaven, who is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful, is both of those in his dealings with these two kings. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God and he responded with worship and submission to the King of Heaven. And so now we wait and see whether one of his successors will also learn that same lesson. Will Belshazzar remember what happened to his grandfather and how he responded and do the same? Well, Daniel is to be called in to try and explain what has just happened and we wait with bated breath as to what will happen next. Time for another commercial break. How is this going to play out? And that brings us to the second part of the story and the second point. The Lord humbles the proud. In some respects, we already know how this is going to end. The writing is both literally and figuratively on the wall. And given the fact that the writing appeared immediately after the author described with very obvious intention the fact that Belshazzar took the vessels from God's temple, it seems pretty clear how this is going to end. The king, probably still quite drunk at this point, he addresses Daniel in a less than respectful way. He highlights the fact that that Daniel was one of the, you you are that Daniel, one of the exiles in Judah. And was brought by Babylon, brought, sorry, brought into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. He's highlighting that, that this is how he sees him. You are an exile, somebody who has been defeated and captured and brought into our kingdom. Never mind the fact that Daniel is an old man by now, and that he has received multiple promotions and high praise from Nebuchadnezzar himself. Never mind any of that. Belshazzar still sees him as one of the exiles. And when you see it this way, you start to see how this comment is, is not just a mere description of how Daniel came to be in Babylon. And it's interesting, when you first read this, you might be excused thinking that perhaps Belshazzar was, was speaking out of ignorance. Maybe he just, he just didn't know who Daniel was, you know? And that, and that the queen mother describing all of that stuff to him is the first time he's heard of him. Well, that's not the case. Again, as we've seen in Daniel, we have more repetition to emphasize the point and to draw out the drama as Belshazzar explains the situation again and what he is hoping that Daniel will do. And then he uses that word again to say, I have heard that you can untie knots. I've heard that you can solve problems. And he offers the reward to Daniel, which he offered to all the others. Purple was an expensive color to make in fabric. So it was quite valuable. It's not the case today, um, which is why I own a purple shirt that my wife picked out for me this morning (laughs) as a rather appropriate colour to wear. (laughs) Let's read how Daniel responds to what Belshazzar says in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Pretty, it, it's pretty likely here that Daniel knows 
that kings try to buy favorable interpretations from their magicians and wise men. I mean, the same thing still happens today, even if people don't use you know, wise men or magicians specifically. Uh, that's why the term yes men exists. If you're rich and powerful, why wouldn't you surround yourself with people who will make you feel good about yourself and agree with you more often than not? There's an example of this kind of trying to buy God earlier in Scripture. Balak wanted Balaam the prophet to curse the Israelites for him in Numbers chapter 22. And he tried to pay him off in order to do so. But the man of God, or the woman of God, cannot be bought. Have you ever thought about what being bought off as a Christian could look like? Do you have a price that would make you willing to deny or to change the truth? Daniel remained faithful to his heavenly king while simultaneously faithfully serving his earthly king. He said, keep your rewards to yourself. I don't need them. But nevertheless, I will interpret for you. You see, Daniel's trust in the sovereignty of the Most High God made him able to resist the allure of prosperity and power that was on offer to him. Brothers and sisters, this world might offer that to you if you just you know, say what they want you to say. And will you trust in the King of Heaven and resist such temptations? What follows is a short history lesson for Belshazzar about his grandfather. He reminds him of his greatness and glory. But more importantly, again, as he did with Nebuchadnezzar, he emphasizes the fact that it was the most high God who gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingship. By now, this is a point that has been so clearly made in Daniel to its readers that if you haven't gotten it yet, you really need to now. And so even though we've talked about this several times along the way, it's important for us to hear it once again. The Most High God is king over all kings of the earth, all rulers of the earth, all people who have any sort of power. There is none higher than him. No earthly king or ruler is in their place without God giving it to them. We are being, we've been told this over and over and over again and being reminded of it so that we get it, so that we don't forget it, so that we don't live as though it is not true. So we ask you again, brothers and sisters, how are you prone to forget this truth? It's easy to imagine how the original readers of Daniel would have forgotten it. They were in exile. They were defeated as a nation. They had no king. They had no temple. It would be so easy to begin to believe that the God that they worshipped and the God that their fathers and their ancestors all worshipped is no God at all. What does it look like for you? Perhaps for us, it is the, it's the retreat of Christendom or the rise of, of evil world rulers or the fear of the collapse of the West. When bad people get their way, or when they get away with their way, 
Does your confidence in God's kingship take a hit? Does your trust in his lordship falter? And do you doubt that he really will judge justly? Look at how God exalted Nebuchadnezzar. All peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Such was the greatness that God gave him. Nebuchadnezzar was able to do whatever he wanted, even to the point of, again, ironically, humbling whom he wanted to humble. He was in that position. Make no mistake, Daniel says that intentionally. Nebuchadnezzar's power was so great that he could humble others. But it was when he became so proud about that and his spirit was hard that God then humbled him. What happens when a big fish in a little pond finds its way to the ocean? What happens when the toughest kid in a small country town moves to the big city? What happens when an earthly king goes up against the heavenly king? They are humbled. Nebuchadnezzar truly was great. But he began to think that his little kingdom was the ocean and not a small pond. So God brought him down from his kingly throne and took his glory from him. As we saw last week, the purpose of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and his case of zoanthropy is explicitly stated and it is repeated here again. In case you missed it from the repetition three times in chapter four, here it is again. So that it, was, it happened until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Don't miss the point. Because despite the repetition, Belshazzar himself failed to grasp it. Let's read from verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house you have been, of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways. You have not honoured. Do you notice the contrasts? Nebuchadnezzar humbled others. Then he was humbled by God because he lifted himself up against God. And here is the key clause that shows that Belshazzar is not innocent in this at all. Though you knew all this. The whole story of Nebuchadnezzar that we looked at last week in chapter 4. Everything that the queen mother said. Everything that Daniel has just relayed to Belshazzar again. He knew all of that. Again, that's unsurprising. Such a dramatic event in his life surely would go down in history, at least be told in the family line. And it is absolutely worthwhile us 
pausing to think about this. Brothers and sisters, have you learned from history? Have you learned from your own personal history, from those in your own life, in your own family line? Seen the things that God has done, whether he has acted in judgment or mercy. Has that caused you to reflect and respond to the God of heaven? But also, have you learned from the history of our spiritual line? Have you learned from the many saints who have gone before us? I've been challenged to think about this again myself this week. Do you learn from the history of the church? From not only their their defeats, their triumphs, their failures. Do you see how God used them? Do you see how God humbled them? How he drew them nearer to Christ and grew their understanding of him through their word? Sorry, through his word. And sadly, such study of history isn't exactly a strength of contemporary evangelical Christians. We love to read and listen to our favorite pastors and teachers who are still alive without learning from or listening to the wisdom of the many who are now dead. I pray that we as a church might be able to encourage each other more in this endeavor. Belshazzar did not learn from his history. And for him, that was fatal. Why? Because he lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven. Against the Lord of heaven. Does that ring a bell? Once again, we see more parallelism here as Daniel refers to God as the Lord of heaven, very similar to the king of heaven, which he used in the previous chapter. Verse 37. That point is unmissable. The kings of this earth, they are small fish. God is a blue whale. And it is his ocean. Daniel spells out plainly to Belshazzar how the very acts that were described at the beginning of this chapter were very clear actions of pride against the Lord of heaven. And he finishes this section with not a little bit of irony. These gods you worship do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand, notice that it's, it's his hand, is your very breath. The very God whose hands are all of your ways and every moment of every day of your life, you have not honored. Brothers and sisters, I trust that you are not liable to forget that God is the one who holds your breath and all your ways in his hand. I trust that you believe that it's not just because your brain is subconsciously telling you to breathe, that you are breathing. I trust that you believe that you are only breathing and living and doing anything because the Lord of heaven is sustaining you every millisecond of every day. At least I trust that you believe that consciously. But in what ways do you subconsciously forget this or live as though it is not true? 
In what ways do you grasp and seek to grasp your own breath and ways? I can tell you how that happens in my own life in two different ways. More than this, but here are two examples. One, I worry about the future. I worry about our church. I worry about all of you individually. I worry about my desire for all of you to continue on and to persevere in the faith. I worry about how these things will impact my own life and my family. And I worry to the point of of thinking that it is up to me to make sure that we all make it across the finish line. Rather than entrusting my life and all of our lives into the hands of God. In my own pride, I think that I can be the one who makes the difference. And that is really the second way that I forget. It shows up in in my thinking that my hand is the one that holds my breath and all my ways. Again, this is a central theme of Daniel and it continues to show up over and over again. That's why our subtitle for this Daniel series is Kingdom to Kingdom. The whole book is about lifting your eyes, lifting up our eyes and from our kingdom here on earth to the kingdom of heaven, to the Lord of heaven. And so if God thinks it's important for us to really grasp this, but by giving us these two twin stories, then it would be wise for us to meditate on them and consider why it requires such repetition. Don't move so quickly from thinking that because you believe that God is the Lord of heaven, that you perfectly live as though that is true. Where might you profess that to be true? And where might it be at odds with how you live? Daniel goes on to describe what happened and what it means. Let's read from verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and passing. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. As I mentioned before, these words weren't some kind of alien language, but they were likely written in such a way that made them impossible to read. And in Aramaic and Hebrew, there are no vowels. And so you can imagine why there can be a bit of confusion as to what is written there. There are many theories as to what was actually written, but what we know now is what Daniel says here. And Daniel makes it clear that this this event, this uh, appearance of the hand is no accident or magical trick, but that the hand that the king and everybody saw was from God's presence. There is no denying that this is a message from the Most High God. And Daniel tells the king not just what the writing says, but also what it means. And as you can see, there is a a theme of numbers going on here. 
And unlike the numbers of tax evaders, God's numbers don't lie. Belshazzar's days and the days of his kingdom, they have been numbered. And that is basically what mene means. He's been weighed in the balances, which is basically what tekel means, weighed. And this gives us a picture of a a set of scales and being found wanting, which is an older word to mean lacking, basically. And his kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Perez, which is the singular form of parson, you may have noticed that in the the two descriptions, they're two different words, at least to us, means divided. And it is actually a wordplay on the word Persians as well. As a side note, this description in verse 28 is is one of the reasons why I think the silver loins, you might remember from the vision in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had of the kingdoms, this is one of the reasons why I think the silver loins refer to the two kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians, the combined kingdom. In short, God has pronounced judgment on Belshazzar for lifting up himself in pride before the Lord of heaven. You see, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar did not humble himself. And he received God's judgment. But before we actually read about him receiving it, we have verse 29. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago how we see types of Joseph throughout the story of Daniel. Well, here's another one from Genesis 41-42. Just as Pharaoh did with Joseph in giving him fine clothing and a gold chain around his neck, Belshazzar gave a great reward for the one who could interpret God's message. Interestingly, this verse, verse 29, breaks up the pronouncement of God's judgment and the execution of that judgment in verse 30. It gives you a little bit of a breather between the end of what Daniel says and then the actual carrying out of it. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Was there an opportunity for Belshazzar to repent? Did he hear God's judgment? And then did he simply just resign himself to it? Did he think to himself, oh, well, I guess that's true. And I can't escape the fact that I'm going to receive it. So I might as well just party on because it's going to be inevitable, right? I wonder if Belshazzar thought to himself that perhaps it wasn't too late for him to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather. Friends, you might be here this morning. Perhaps you might think this. You might think it's, it's too late for me. I'm already on my way to hell. So, so why bother changing now? Please know that it is not too late. As long as God continues to give you breath As long as he continues to give you this day today, there is opportunity for you to humble yourself before him and to worship him as God. Don't think that the best way to live out your life, the rest of your days, however many they might be, is to just simply eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. God is calling you through this passage this morning, to humble yourself before him. 
He's calling you to turn from a life that lifts yourself up and to turn to one that trusts in Jesus for mercy from his judgment. Daniel doesn't tell us why uh, he didn't resist the reward that the king gave him, even though he explicitly told him that he didn't want it. Perhaps it's because he knew that it would land him in trouble if he tried to make a fuss. Perhaps he knew the situation was about to change. But either way, this was the last thing that the Bible records that Belshazzar did. Let's read from verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. These two verses are what help us know the timing of this whole chapter. It was in 539 BC that Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, interestingly, we have records of this event from both Babylonian and Greek sources. They tell a slightly different story, which is often the case in ancient history. And it's hard to discern what's true because, you know, everyone loves a little bit of propaganda. The Greek historian Xenophon, writing in the 4th century BC, described the Persians as partying away on that night. Many of them are asleep, many drunk, and none of them in battle array. The Cyrus Cylinder, however, tells us something else. He, Marduk, made him, Cyrus, enter his city Babylon without fighting or battle. He saved Babylon from hardship. So whether he had to fight or not... We know the outcome for Belshazzar. This is how he met his end. You've noticed, though, that the Bible, you might have noticed that the Bible says it was actually Darius the Mede and not Cyrus who took the kingdom. As far as we're aware, no other documents refer to Cyrus as Darius outside the Bible. Uh, there are a few reasons, a few, sorry, a few theories on why this is, which I'm not going to go into. Uh, but probably the best explanation at the moment is that Darius was one of Cyrus's throne names, which was not an uncommon thing for kings to have. They would have their name and then they would have their throne name or king, king's name. Some Israelite kings, for example, did this, like we see in 2 Kings 23 verse 24. And given that Cyrus would have been about 62 at this time, uh, then that also gives weight to this theory. Now, it's, it's worth noting that scholars uh, previously argued that Belshazzar was an entirely fake person uh, made up by Daniel until uh, in the 1800s, the Nabonidus cylinder was dug up and they found a record of Belshazzar outside of the Bible. Suddenly, hey, it's actually credible. So as, as at this point, as far as uh, who Darius is, there are still some questions. Who knows? Maybe some future excavations may uh, give us more information. I tell you all of that just in case somebody tries to, to spring that one on you. And the point is, though, that all that God said, all that he pronounced, it happened. Belshazzar's days were numbered. He was weighed and found wanting. And his kingdom was divided among the Medes and the Persians.
Mene, Mene, Tekel, Perez. God's judgment fell upon him, and his judgment was just. God humbles all kings, and he will humble all people. And we all must respond with one of two choices. We either respond with humility, as Nebuchadnezzar did, or we respond in stubborn pride, lifting ourselves up before him, as Belshazzar did. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord of heaven? Have you learned from those that have gone before us and done precisely that? And does that give you confidence and trust in God and his judgment? Oftentimes we think that we know how to judge better than God. I mentioned last week that as Christians, our desire for the proud ought always to be for their humbling and for their salvation. Even if we don't like them, even if we find their arrogance really offensive and gross. What about when it goes the other way? What about those that we desire to be saved? Or perhaps that we think should be? People who are, who are kind, who are generous, who are selfless, who are upstanding citizens. People whom we know are actually far better people than us if we were to tally up their good works against ours. And yet who have not humbled themselves before the Lord of heaven. Who have not trusted in Christ for salvation. Do you trust God's judgment then? Or do you say that God is unfair? You see, what we've witnessed in chapter 5 is a great truth. It's a truth that would have been great hope to the Israelites in exile to know that God humbles kings and he ultimately judges wicked kings. That such powerful rulers, they are not exempt from his judgment. They have not somehow escaped his rule. But it also reminds us of how imperfect and skewed our own judgments are. Those that we often wish received God's judgment instead receive his mercy. And those that we think deserve his mercy end up receiving his judgment. As Jesus reminds us in Matthew 20, 15, the king is allowed to do what he chooses with what belongs to him. We rightly, as Christians, love to talk up God's lavish mercy on us as sinners who do not deserve it. But let's not fail to remind and warn all people that God's judgment is just and he will not fail to carry it out. Revelation 18, verses 2 to 3, in language that alludes to the feast that we witnessed in this chapter, says this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And still talking about Babylon, which here represents all people who proudly reject God 
John goes on to say this in chapter 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, the same God who brought judgment upon Belshazzar is the same God who will bring judgment on all people at the end of the age. That ought to humble us. That ought to cause us to lift our eyes to the Lord of heaven, to lift our eyes to our Saviour who alone can grant us mercy. That ought to spur us on to warn all people. That that ought to spur us on to offer the hope and good news of salvation through faith in Christ. As surely as God will judge the wicked, he will surely show mercy to all who humble themselves before him in repentance and trust in Christ. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. Do you trust his judgment? Let's pray. Father, we are reminded once again that our natural sinful instincts, our desires, lift ourselves up against you. Lord, please humble us. Please remind us of the fact that we would be lost and would be immediately receiving your judgment if it were not for Christ. If it were not for your mercy. Lord, may that not be something that we just believe with our minds. But may we be reminded each day that every breath is in your hand, every step is in your hand. And so we lift our eyes to the Lord of heaven and surrender and submit to you. Father, may we not keep that to ourselves. But Lord, spur us on to go and share that with all. With our friends and families and neighbours. With all that we come into contact with. You are the Lord of heaven. And we praise and exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen.